51. Let's pray before we go to God's word. Father, thank you for your word that you have given us. Thank you for these psalms that we can, uh, we can go, we can read them, we can resonate with the experiences of the psalmist. We can understand uh, the questions that are asked. We can understand the fears and the doubts and the anxieties, maybe the cynicism of, of life in this fallen world. And I pray that as we dig in this morning, as we see this very clear picture of, of what life is like in a fallen world, God, that you would encourage us, that you would lift up our eyes to see who you are, to see above what we see and experience here, to see you seated on your throne, to see you sovereign above all things, to see your care for us and your love for us as your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you, uh, if you Google the phrase, the art of asking questions, there will be multiple things that, that pop up, kind of the main hits. Uh, it's going to be a combination of TED Talks. Uh, there's, I counted at least like five or six main TED Talks that are all about the art of asking questions. And then there's going to be some book recommendations. There's a whole bunch of books out there about how to ask good questions. And the goal in all of these of, of asking good questions good questions, is improving your communication with other people, right? It's it's having better interpersonal relationships, and that's a good thing. But all good things, as we know, can be twisted, right? We've all probably experienced having some, some awkward or some intrusive questions asked of us. It might feel disingenuous. It might feel manipulative, You might be thinking, did this person just read a book this week on how to ask good questions by the way they're peppering you with questions? So not all questions are created equally. And not all questions maybe are asking what they seem to be asking. Might appear clear on the surface what the question is is seeking to ask, but the underlying motivation of what's really being asked, those two things might be worlds apart. So I want you to consider the question that is before us this morning. Title of the message, if you have the outline there. God, where are you? And we're going to see this question asked this morning in Psalm 10 in two different ways. God, where are you? And both of these ways reflect something that is true as a result of the fall. Both of them reveal the brokenness of the human condition, and both of them reveal our need for a Savior. Now, Psalm 10 is is interesting here. We're looking at uh, Psalm, we saw Psalm 77 last week, Psalm 22, we're going to look at next week. And those are kind of autobiographical. Those are Psalms where the psalmist is, is talking very personally about their own experience. Psalm 10 here is a little bit more generic. Um, historically, it has been combined along with Psalm 9, which was written by David, but there are no I statements in Psalm 10. Uh, the only I statements that we see are the, um, the words of the wicked, but it's, it's not, there are no personal pronouns coming from the psalmist himself. So it's kind of a generic statement of what is the condition of the world. So it doesn't address a personal attack, but it asks the general questions of justice, And why do the wicked prosper? 
I think this, this psalm really helps provide a good framework for understanding the rest of the psalms. There are a lot of themes that are in this psalm that we see repeated throughout the psalms. And there are other places in scripture, like the first chapter of Proverbs, where we see a lot of the similar language. So we'll explore some of those connections. Okay, so there are, I said there's two ways to ask the God, where are you question. The first way is as the psalmist does here. It's as someone who trusts in God, but is lamenting the condition of the world. So it's asking from a place of faith. It's asking from a place of hope and trust. But it's, it's lamenting and it's just saying, God, God, where are you? What's going on? Uh, if you weren't with us last week, Bill quoted from the book Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy that we're going to be looking at for our summer conversation, where Mark Vrogrop, the author, defines lament as a prayer in pain that leads to trust. A prayer in pain that leads to trust. So it's talking about the reality of life, reality of a broken world that we live in, but it's, that, it's a type of prayer that leads us forward to trusting in God. A couple of other explanations that he gives of lament in the book. He says, lament is how those who know what God is like and believe in him address their pain. God is good, but life is hard. I think we would all be able to say amen to that on some level. He also says, lament is the language of a people, which is, this is important because we have, in the Psalms, we have many communal Psalms of lament. It's not all just individual Lament is the language of a people who believe in God's sovereignty, which we would say we do, but live in a world with tragedy, right? So this is certainly the case here in Psalm 10, again, throughout many of the Psalms. Actually, over a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Even almost, almost half of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. And I think, I think we should pause and consider that for a moment. We should pause and consider the ratio there. Why more than 60 of the psalms, closer to 70 by some people's counting, of 150 are psalms of lament. What might God be trying to communicate to his people? And what can we learn about worship and devotion in these psalms? If you look at the front of your worship guide, sorry for being a little quote heavy this morning, but I think it's helpful for us to understand this idea of lament. If you look at the cover of your worship guide, this is a quote that is in the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, by another author, Michael Jenkins, in his book, In the House of the Lord, Inhabiting the Psalms of Lament. He says, the Psalms of Lament open us to the greatness of a God who not only can hear, but also can handle our pain, our self-pity, our blame, and our fear who can respond to our anger, our disillusionment in the midst of oppression and persecution under the boot of tyranny, and our sense of God-forsakenness in the face of life's most profound alienations and exiles. Again, I think this quote is, is helpful. It will help lead us into the text this morning and Maybe you've felt guilty before about bringing your complaints to God or bringing your difficult questions to God. But the Psalms of Lament give us permission to do so. They give us permission to come before the Lord with our doubts and our fears. And they remind us that God can hear and God can handle those questions. 
He's not going to be shaken by it. He's not going to be taken off. How could you ask me that, right? He's been asked every question. He's had every accusation, every complaint thrown at him. So this leads us into our first section. And if you're looking at the outline there, you'll see it says on the, on the top, it's okay to, and there are four things that we're going to look at that it's okay to do. First, it's okay to ask God hard questions. And I'm going to read the sections of Psalm 10 that relate to these as we go through them. I'm not going to read through the whole psalm all at once. It's okay to ask God hard questions. Verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The psalmist asks two very sincere questions here. And the gist of both of these questions is, God, where are you? And the Psalms are are filled with these types of questions. They often begin with the word why. Why why are these things happening? Why is the world the way it is? Or words like how long? How long, O Lord, until you come, until you make things right? How long until you rescue me? How long until you deliver me? And again, God can handle these questions. God is not phased by our questions. He's not phased by our doubts and our fears because he is unchanging. He can't be changed or rattled by our circumstances and our difficulties. I think it's very important that we have a right understanding of who God is as we think about Psalms of Lament, as we think about our complaints and our fears and our doubts. Maybe you've felt this way yourself or you've heard other people express something like, Well, I don't want to bother God with my prayers, right? He's too busy running the universe, right, to to hear what's going on in my life, right? He's too concerned with many other things, and he doesn't really care about my life and my needs. And I want to tell you, that is absolutely not true, okay? He does care, and he is concerned, In fact, it's actually the opposite, and Scripture tells us that it's the opposite. It tells us that we should bother him with our prayers. You remember Jesus' parable about the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18? She kept coming before the unjust judge, asking for justice, and he finally gives it to her. And what does Jesus say to his disciples? Will not God give justice to his elect, who, what? Ask him every once in a while? No. Who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them, he will give justice to them speedily. God wants us to bring those concerns. He wants us to bring those requests to him day and night. Don't stop praying. Don't stop asking. If you're in the season, God, where are you? Don't stop asking that question. Keep asking until he shows you. We're going to see this cry for justice in this psalm in verses 12 to 15. We'll get there in a minute. But first we need to see how the psalmist laments the situation that he finds himself in. We're going to see that it's okay to lament the effects of the fall. It's okay to lament the effects of the fall. Verses 2 through 11. 
He says, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Well, the psalmist follows the question, his questions of God's hiddenness and God's silence by painting a picture of the fallen world in which he finds himself. And this is not a pretty picture. This is not a place that any of us want to be. Do you remember the imagery and the language from Psalm 1? Psalm 1 was the introduction to the entire book of Psalms. We looked at that in our outdoor service. Blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor delights in the, or sits in the way of sinners and the, in the seat of scoffers, but he delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his law day and night. So there's this contrast between the wicked and the one who seeks after the Lord. And then we, again, we have that imagery that he is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And then those words, in all that he does, he prospers. This is talking about the person who trusts in the Lord and follows the Lord. In all that he does, he prospers. And it says, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. It doesn't really seem to be the experience of the writer of Psalm 10, does it? Now, is that just, is Psalm 1 just some idealistic, like, you know, head in the clouds kind of Christianity? He speaks here about the reality of life in this world. He speaks about the arrogance and the boasting and the pride of the wicked in verses 2 through 4. And look at verse 5. His ways prosper at all times. Again, it's the exact opposite of what we see in Psalm 1. And look at his thoughts. Look at what he says in his heart, verse 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Who speaks in this way? If you, we keep reading in the Psalms, actually it's just on the next page. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
Psalm 53 starts off the exact same way. This is the second way to ask the question, God, where are you? Because the fool knows that God is. The fool knows that God is there. But he pretends as if he's not. He says in his heart, there is no God. And I'm going to do whatever I dang well please, right? Which we're going to see here in the rest of this psalm. But he knows that God is there. So when he says, God, where are you? It's, I don't want to do what you tell me to do. I don't want to acknowledge who you are. God, where are you? The second way is asked from that perspective. It's a denial and a rejection of who God is. Verse 6, he says in his heart again, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. This is the foolishness of temporary prosperity, right? When things are going well, when you've got enough money, when you've got the things you need, oh man, it's going to be like this forever, right? Like, I'm going to always have enough things. You know, I'm never, I'm never going to get sick. I'm never going to die. I will not be moved throughout all generations. And this is the exact opposite of the eternal perspective that the scriptures call us to adopt. To realize that, that we are dust and that we are going to die and that we need to look to the Lord. Verses 7 through 10 are very interesting. It talks about this attack on the, on the poor, this ambushing, stealthily watching, trying to lurking so that he may seize them. This is exactly how the book of Proverbs opens up. There's two warnings in the book of two main warnings in the in the book of Proverbs that Solomon is writing for his son. One is related to, to wealth and money, the other one is related to sexuality. And both of them end with the same warning. We're going to look at the first one, the one regarding wealth. Proverbs chapter 1, he says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Now listen to the, the similar language of Psalm 10 here. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. He's saying it is a suicide mission to live this way. If you seek wealth and power and control over other people in this way, it will cost you your life. You might be like the person in Psalm 10, verse 6, who says, I'm not going to be moved, right? I got power, I got money, I'm in control. But it will cost you your life. And then the ultimate display of arrogance is there in verse 11. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Again, this is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. I think this idea of of God hiding his face, of him never seeing it, is something that 
throughout the history of the world was understandable, right? Like, I'm just kind of, I'm living my life here, and God is way out there. But how different do we perceive this in our technological age, where there are literally cameras everywhere? You can be recorded doing anything. There are countries in the world right now where there is video surveillance and, and facial recognition going on. So this idea that God has forgotten, he has hidden, his, nobody's going to see what I'm going to do. We don't live in that age anymore. It's just a reality that we have to realize, which interestingly should, should push us to realize that God is watching. But I think there's a lot of fear surrounding this issue, and rightfully so. But again, I think Jesus' words are so instructive for us here. In Matthew chapter 10, he told his disciples that he was sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And that's definitely how Psalm 10 feels, right? If you read this, you feel like you're a sheep in the midst of wolves. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples. Have no fear of them, the wolves or the wicked, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. I love this, okay? This connection between God's seeing and now what he says next. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. I think, when I think of that verse, most of the time I just think, oh, God cares. Like, God just cares for me. Like, that's all I think about. And I don't think about, no, he sees me, right? There's nothing hidden that will not be known. There's nothing covered up that won't be revealed. He doesn't just care, he sees and he cares. And we need to be reminded of that. He sees and he cares and he knows and he hears our prayers. So we should cry out to him. We should seek him and cry out to him, especially as we see injustice around us. And that's what the psalmist shows us next that it's okay to cry out to God for justice. Verses 12 through 15. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The first thing that he does here is he asks God to arise. He asks God to act. We see this ten times in the Psalms, this word arise. It's asking God to, to, calling God to action. We're not going to dig into this passage, but if you're taking notes and you want to write this down, I would encourage you to go, go back and read 2 Kings chapter 19. It's when 
the, the, an invading army is coming against uh, Jerusalem, and King Hezekiah takes a letter that was a threatening letter that was written, and he goes and he lays it out before the Lord. He says, "God, open your eyes and see. Open your ears and hear the threats." Now, obviously, Hezekiah knew that God saw and heard, but he's interceding. He's saying, "God, look at what is happening to your people. Hear these threats and act." Brothers and sisters, we can pray with that same boldness that wasn't just reserved for a king in Israel. We can go before the Lord. I, I, the first time I read that, that ver- those verses, I was like, whoa, can, like, can I do this? Like, can I pray this way? We can. We can ask God to arise. We can ask God to see and to hear and to act on behalf of his people. We can ask him to not forget the afflicted. Now here the psalmist builds on his observations of the wicked in verses 2 through 11. And he asks a very pointed question in verse 13. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? There's this kind of interesting play on this word. It's actually used three different times throughout this psalm. If you look at verse 4, if you have the ESV, it says in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. And there's a little footnote there, it should be number seven. And you look down, it says, or the wicked says, he will not call to account. So it's the exact same thing we see in verse 13. So there's that word for seeking and inquiring and calling to account are the same thing. So I think there's this interesting connection between those two ideas there. And the third one we're going to see in verse 15. So, again, seeking God... And knowing that God will call to account. There's, a, there's very much a relation between those things. We seek God knowing that he's the judge. Knowing that he's the one who will call to account. And that's actually a comforting thing. But why, why does the opposite happen? Why, does, why do people not seek God? And why do people say God will not call to account? Well, this is the story of the human race, right? Since the Garden of Eden. What were Adam and Eve doing in the garden? Hiding from God, right? After the fall. When God asked Adam, Adam, where are you? It's not that God didn't know where Adam was. Of course God knew where Adam was. Where are you, Adam, meant I see you. I see what you have done. I know what you have done. Come out of the hiding. Come and face me. And I think that I see you is applies to all of Adam's descendants as well. I see who your descendants will be. I see what humans will do for the rest of history if they try to remain in hiding. The psalmist here in verse 14 acknowledges that God sees. But you do see for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. So he acknowledges that God is, is the helper of the fatherless. God is the one who, who sees. God is the one who acts. And then in light of that, the psalmist here makes what seems to be a bit of a shocking request in verse 15. 
Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. So this is the third occurrence of that same word that means to seek or inquire or to call to account. So, you know, the, the psalmist says the wicked person doesn't seek God or says God won't call to account. And then, and then he says God won't call to account. And the psalmist is actually saying here then, God, call him to account. Show him that he's accountable to you. This is a cry for justice. And this call to God, is this is something that God has every right to do, every right to carry out. But I don't think this gives us permission to like call down curses upon our enemies. But it's rather to pray that God would seek them out. That he would bring about justice. That they would experience his all-seeing eye. That they would stop saying, well, God's not going to see, God's not going to act. I think that's a very, I think that's a great way to pray about things that are going on in our world. God, see, God, act. God, show these people that they are under your all-seeing eye. That they cannot hide from you. In this language here of breaking the arm of the wicked and the evildoer, it's probably more figurative than literal. Um, I don't think it's calling for God to like physically break somebody's arm. But I do want to tell you a crazy story. And I think of this every time I read this song. When we moved to China in uh, 2008, 2007, 2008, um, there was a, so the way it worked with our ministry was there were like long-term teams and then there were short-term teams that would come in, usually a group of like people in their early 20s, some of them still in college, some of them just out of college who are just really like excitable, you know, fired up people. And there was this guy named Peter and Peter was, Peter is, is a crazy guy. Um, but Peter had this huge scar down his arm with, with that he had like, you know, bolts and pins or plates and everything in his arm. And when I was talking to him once, I was asking him about the scar. So he tells me the story that I think he might have been in college, and uh, he was not walking. He wasn't a Christian. I don't even know if he, like, grew up in a Christian home or anything, but he was not walking with the Lord. And his girlfriend broke up with him, and so he jumped out a window. Like, literally, like, he's like, I don't know if I was trying to kill myself or what I was doing. I just, like, flipped out, and I jumped out a window, and he broke his arm. Somebody came and visited him in the hospital and gave him a Bible. And he sat down and started reading the Psalms. And he reads Psalm 10, verse 15. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. And he gets converted in his hospital bed. I'm not even joking. So, I don't think we should pray for God to literally break people's arms. But God can literally break people's arms and convert them, okay? And I hope you'll remember that story when you read Psalm 10 in the future. Because it's an awesome picture of God's care for us. And Peter's story reminds me that we have a sovereign and loving God who sometimes needs to wound us so that he can heal us. So don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Don't despise the hard things that might be going on in your life that might be bringing you back to him. And this is the testimony of anyone who is a true Christian, isn't it? We have been brought low. God has broken us of our pride. He's interrupted our lives. He's interrupted the plans that we have for ourselves. And he's shown us that we are the people that the psalmist is describing here. We are 
the ones in Psalm 10. And if you read Psalm 10 and your immediate response is, well, look out there. Look at all the evil and wicked people out there. Then you've missed the point of God's grace. I love how Paul drives this point home to the Corinthians. Remember the Corinthian church? Remember that city of Corinth filled with wickedness and sexual immorality? And those things were going on in the church too. Paul spoke some very hard and necessary truths. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Basically, nobody's getting in. But then he says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But, the greatest word in the Bible, but. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God You have been brought from darkness into light. You were dead in the world and you've been made alive in Christ. Such were some of you. Jesus is our Lord. He is our master. He is our king. And we've said that as we go through the Psalms this summer, we're going to be seeing how do the Psalms point us to Jesus. And sometimes, you know, we have to be careful. Next week it's going to be very clear, Psalm 22, Jesus quotes those words on the cross. We have to be careful that we don't just say, oh, well, this, like, Psalm is exactly about Jesus. Um, but I think, I think this next section, these next three verses, point us pretty clearly to, to Jesus. We're, see, we're going to see that it's okay to long for the king's return. Verses 16 through 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The psalmist here acknowledges that the Lord is king forever and ever, that he will do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that he will put an end to the terror of wicked people. And there's a very stark contrast here between the Lord is king forever and ever and verse 6 where the wicked person says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. The psalmist here is saying, obviously that's not true. It is the Lord who reigns forever and ever. He is the king. And when we look around our world today, or we look at the bloodshed of the last century, we might be tempted towards cynicism or unbelief. We might question whether God has really seen, whether God will actually call to account. But the psalmist's assurance and ours is seen in verse 17. O Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. 
I don't know what you might be going through right now in your life or how you might feel that God has been hiding himself from you and not hearing your cries. But I want to reassure you that he does hear and he does care and he does desire that you would trust in him even when you can't see what he is up to in your life. I want to close with this idea of longing for the king's return by reading from the Nicene Creed. And we usually recite the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed once a month. But the section in the Nicene Creed about Jesus, I think is very instructive and informative for us here. It reminds us what we profess to believe about our Lord Jesus Christ as we long for his return. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father all-glorious, or all-victorious, come and reign over us, ancient of days. God, we sang those words earlier. We believe those words. You are glorious. You are victorious. You are the king who reigns forever and ever. God, come and reign over us. Reign over your people. God, may we see the reality of the gospel, that such were some of us. That we were in darkness. We were like the wicked person here in Psalm 10. But we have been bought, we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. May we live lives that are a response to that grace, that are a response to that mercy. God, change us. Grow us, shape us to be more like your son. We pray in his name. Amen.